Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hit the Light Podcast with me, Big Frog. And I am going solo this week because Mike is moving closer to his university. And um, so obviously he's got his hands full this week. So I've been wanting to do an episode like this one anyways because I love guitars and I love Iron Maiden so what better than to do an episode on the guitars of Maiden it's fucking match made in heaven you might say and so basically what I want to do is um I want to take you through everything about the guitars of Iron Maiden which is to say the actual guitars that they play the amps that they play the effects that they use you know um who plays what and uh, who does what solo and you know I want to kind of encapsulate the whole thing I knew a lot of this shit I forgot a lot of this shit I looked a lot of this shit back up and now I know a lot of this shit again so here we go basically I'm gonna start with Steve Harris because Steve Harris is the leader of the band Steve Harris was the main songwriter for many 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 years still is uh, still writes a lot of the songs, not all of them like he used to, but still writes a lot. And yeah, the bass is a guitar. It's a bass guitar, and he's one of the baddest motherfuckers ever to uh, ever to strap one of those things on. So Steve Harris comes up in in East London. He's a fan of like Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and Zeppelin, like everybody was. But he also likes like Emerson Lake and Palmer and Genesis and Jethro Tull and more progressive shit like that. He also likes like Thin Lizzy, UFO, Uriah Heep. And the dude that that always comes up the most when I see him is Pete Way from uh, UFO. Because like Pete Way used to wear those striped pants and then Steve Harris has striped pants. And Pete Way became famous for his Firebird bass, but before that, in the early days of UFO, he played a precision bass, and Steve Harris plays a precision bass. So, that kind of lets me know that he was really a Pete Way guy, in a sense, or at least he thought Pete Way was cool. You know, one of the two, probably both. And so, Steve Harris comes up in East London, and he's um, in all these bands, you know, and he's starting to write songs and the songs that he's writing are heavy and they're also progressive you know they they have time changes you know the bass is doing more than what people are probably used to and some of the guys in these bands don't want to play that shit so basically he's forced to start his own band which he does in at the end of 1975 they actually have it as Christmas Day 1975 Steve Harris said, okay, you know, this is this is going to be my band, Iron Maiden, right? And so from 1975 to um, 1979 or so, Steve Harris and Iron Maiden are playing all around London and they're going through extensive lineup changes, especially on guitar, where, I mean, he picked up Dave Murray pretty early on, but the other guitar spot was constantly overturned and they went through various singers before they found Paul Diano, and they went through uh, various drummers before they found Clive Burr. So, all this is happening until 1979, 
they go into the studio, which was Steve Harris, Paul Diano, Dave Murray, and Doug Sampson on drums. So they go in to the studio to record four songs, which is Iron Maiden, Invasion, Prowler, and Strange World. So they go in there. They don't have a lot of money. Um, they record basically a session, and you know the 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 studio keeps the tape because they have to pay for the tape, and they didn't have money to pay for the tape. So they did a quick mix down. They took that tape with them, and then they were going to come back later and record more stuff and on it and then, you know, and then get a master. Well, by the time they came back, they didn't have, you know, the money to pay for it or whatever. They, they had erased the tapes. So all they ended up having was this, you know, quarter inch, you know, like a quick master of an unfinished tape. But it was enough that they took three of the four songs and released them and it got huge in london and what it did was it established basically the sound of iron maiden and the sound of iron maiden was not like any band that had ever been before you know they were they were uh, faster and heavier and more precise than uh than any heavy metal band up until that time and it you know it was a new it was a new style and one of the parts of it that was new was that it was bass driven you know the bass was not just you know um to keep time with the drums or to play along with the riff or any of that normal shit that normal bass players do steve harris was the was the driving force behind the songs first of all he wrote the songs on the bass most of them and he wrote every song that's on the soundhouse tapes so basically it's like the bass is almost the lead instrument for these songs and it shows and it's partly the aggression of that bass that made me fall in love with iron maiden because he's doing everything on these songs like sometimes he's doing the galloping where he's fucking basically you know it, it feels like you're on a stagecoach driving along with them you know, and sometimes he's doing harmonies with the guitar. Sometimes he's locked in with the drums. Sometimes he's just following the the riff, you know, but sometimes he does all of those things all in one song, you know, and the the level of, of musicianship, the level of songwriting is amazing. A good example of that would be um, a song like Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera shows everything that um, that Steve Harris can do. At the beginning of the song, he does the intro riff along with the guitars, which is a pretty complicated riff. And then it breaks into a this three-part harmony with two guitars, where it's pretty complicated and, and time changes are happening and everything. And then towards the end of the song... He, while the harmony, while the guitar harmonies are still going on, he drops out of the guitar harmony and locks in with the drums for the, to, to keep the rhythm tight. So he does all of those things just in that song. And that's on the first album. Sometimes he does the bass intros, like, for example, uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue. That's a badass bass intro. Innocent Exile. That's a badass. Even Running Free. 
running freeze, you know, you know, that's that's classic, you know, and that's just one of the facets of Steve Harris. Of course, he does those galloping bass lines, which he's famous for, which I guess he invented. As far as I know, he invented that shit, which is, you know, and he plays with his fingers and he plays fast. And, you know, some examples of, of the galloping would be like Run to the Hills or The Trooper, you know, where he's basically just like leading the song, you know, and that's that was unheard of for a bass that that I ever knew in in heavy metal or in rock in any type of rock another song you should check out if you want to see everything that Steve Harris can do is the rhyme of the ancient mariner you know because in that way he does everything and he even has these you know little interludes in in throughout the song that are unique to iron maiden and unique to Steve Harris one thing that has always been said of Iron Maiden is that they're a super tight band, and they are. And mainly the reason for that is Steve Harris's also ability to lock in with the drummer, with Nico in, in this case nowadays. And a couple of good examples of that would be like the instrumental Lost for Words, and then Where Eagles Dare is a, is a sick uh, representation of how tight uh, Iron Maiden can be and how big Steve Harris is a part of that. Now, one thing that has always been consistent in Iron Maiden is the sound of Steve Harris, Steve Harris's sound. And that makes a lot of sense because he's always played a precision bass throughout all of the recording and all of the tours. If you're an Iron Maiden fan, you know that he plays a white bass right now. And then he used to play like a sparkly blue bass and then he used to play a black bass. And if you're a real Iron Maiden fan, you know that those are all Fender Precision Basses. And if you're listening to this podcast, then you now know that those are all actually the same bass. And he's been playing that same bass since 1976. It's a 1971 Fender Precision Bass. The first time we see it is in the Women of uh, Women in Uniform video, and it's black. Then later on, when you see it in the Number of the Beast videos and around then, it's the sparkly, like, metal flake blue. And now, if you see it the way he plays it now, it's white with the West Ham logo on it. But it's the same bass throughout all those years. For a long time, it was stock. And then eventually he added a brass bridge to it called a badass bridge. And he replaced the pickup, which was just worn out, with the Seymour Duncan pickup. But the pickup's basically designed to sound the same as the original Fender pickup. So it's probably like a Fender pickup just with a little more everything because it's a fucking Seymour Duncan. It's a better pickup. Around the time that uh, they made Peace of Mind, a Canadian guitar company named Lado made guitars for all of them. For uh, And Steve got a bass, which was light blue and kind of shaped like a Firebird bass, which again might have been like a shout out to Pete Way. I don't know if he ever played that on an album or even on a tour. I know he used it in that Trooper video 
that's about it. I do remember seeing pictures of it at the time, like in Circus Magazine or Hit Parader or whatever it was. So he must have used it on some dates. But basically, you know, even if you search for pictures of it now online, there's not a lot of pictures of it. So, um, or at least not in a live setting. So, you know, it was a blip in an otherwise consistent Fender Precision Bass uh, career. And finally now, you know, I'm not sure what year it came out, but Fender did make a, a signature model Steve Harris Bass, which is basically a 71 Precision Bass. And uh, and cool, man. You know, uh, he should he should have that and more. I think you can get it like the like the sparkly blue color or um, the white color with uh, West Ham. One thing that's kind of strange, considering how consistent his sound has been the whole time, is that he's used various amps over the years. I think um, for most of the time, he's been using Ampeg SVTs, which are very popular um, bass amps. Uh, especially during the 80s, they were they were the shit. Like, everybody played them. But since then, he's also gone through times where he played Trace Elliott amps, which are smaller, more modern amps. And I've seen him on stage with High Watt amps quite a few times. High Watt and Iron Maiden have a thing where, I don't know, they can't, like, leave each other alone. But, you know, that really hasn't had any effect on his overall sound and you know I really don't think there's like that much to bass amplification most of the time you can really run the bass through the PA if you wanted to you know but that could just be me and the ignorance of a guitar player thinking that you know bass amps aren't that important but generally speaking uh, I don't know that many basses that are super super married to a certain amp they tend to move around a lot more than guitar players do. You probably won't be too surprised to find out that Steve Harris doesn't use a whole lot of effects. You know, he has a basic rig that, you know, most people have for, you know, delays and the such. But his sound really isn't, you know, colored or processed in any way. It's a really natural bass sound. It's just, you know, in your face more than, more than most. And that's what sets it apart. And speaking of things that set Steve Harris apart, one of the main things that sets him apart is his stage performance. You know, first of all, from the beginning of the band, he was center stage. You know, once Bruce joined the band, he had to move over a little bit, but he's still right center. You know, he's all over the place. Still, at however old he is now, he's everywhere on a huge stage. And singing along and you know just you know he points the bass at you like a machine gun and all that kind of shit you know he's just like so into it that you know makes you more into it as if you needed something to make you be more into it but you know yeah man i mean basically you wrap up all those elements you know into um into one dude and you have Steve Harris, and he does all of those things. There's not like one thing that he does kind of weak, you know, or one thing that, you know, he doesn't really seem like he's that into this part or that part or anything like that. He's the complete 
bassist for Iron Maiden. He's the complete performer. He's the complete songwriter. He's, you know, for all intents, he is Iron Maiden, you know, and everyone else that, you know, that has contributed to his vision, but ultimately, you know, Iron Maiden is his baby. Now, obviously, there are too many Steve Harris, you know, bass licks to mention all of them. Too many great ones. But a couple of more uh, honorable mentions, if you want to check out Steve's style, would be the Song Killers and the Clairvoyant. Those are also excellent bass lines by Steve Harris. Now, when Steve Harris was first looking for bandmates, of course, he needed guitar players. And one of the first dudes that he found was Dave Murray. Dave Murray was on again, off again at the beginning, but he's been the longest tenured member of Iron Maiden besides Steve Harris. And while the other guitar spot has been people coming and going throughout the early years, Dave Murray has always been at that one spot, solid, all through the time that Maiden has recorded albums. So Dave Murray is also from East London. Around the age of 15, he picked up the guitar. He was into Hendrix. He was into Jeff Beck. He was into a dude named Paul Kossoff from a band called Free, which was Paul Rogers' band before um, Bad Company. And they were very popular at the time in England. I don't know that they really broke here, but, um, but they were huge then. As a young kid, he was actually friends with Adrian Smith, and they were in the same band for a little while, and uh, he actually sold Adrian Smith his first guitar, which is cool, you know. Uh, I, I sold a couple of my bandmates their first guitars, and, you know, it was, it was you know, awesome. Uh, it's just a way of coming up together, you know. Anyway, so early on, Dave took a liking to Stratocasters and Stratocaster-type guitars because he probably couldn't afford a real Strat at first. By the time it was like 76 or so, he uh, saw an ad in the paper. It said that this Stratocaster had been bought by, had been owned by Paul Kossoff of Free, which was one of his favorite guitar players who had recently died. So... He went and checked it out, and he checked out the serial numbers, and the serial numbers was the same one listed as a guitar that Paul Kossoff had owned, so he bought it. Now, if you know about Stratocasters, the numbers are on the neck, and the body doesn't have any numbers. So, as it turns out, that guitar ended up being a 57 neck from a guitar that Paul Kossoff owned, but the body was not the original body. The original body was white, this one was black, and the original body was obviously a 57, and this one was a 63. So he basically bought a mutt, but at one time or another, at least parts of it belonged to his hero, Paul Kossoff, so he was happy about it, whatever. And I don't know if, if knowing that the body wasn't original or anything like that made him hesitate less to cut it up, but he certainly did cut it up. And he, when he put uh, two humbuckers in it, which is which drastically alters the sound of a Stratocaster when you put humbuckers in it, and that would later on become the template of what a Super Strat would be. Anyway, he put um, two DiMarzios in it, both of them Super Distortion models, which are great pickups, and um, 
and that guitar became that black and white Strat that's famous as Dave Murray's guitar that he played all the way from the beginning all the way through 1990 and he played that on every recording so you know some guys have you know I, I do this guitar for solos I use this guitar for rhythms I use this guitar for uh, clean parts whatever not Dave he used that one Strat for everything and until he retired it in 99 now Fender during the 80s, during the time when Maiden was big, they were fucking up. You know, almost every guitar company has, you know, times that they're winning and times that they're losing. And the 80s were definitely a time that Fender was losing. You know, their glory days were in the 50s and early 60s. And now they're really back again doing great things again now. But they had some tough times and uh, where they made some really bad decisions. And one of the bad decisions that they made was not giving Dave Murray a signature model guitar right off the bat. If they would have got him after Number of the Beast and built a guitar like his, basically, they could have cornered the Super Strat market because that's what that's what his guitar was. And if they would have put out a guitar just like that, they would have sold millions of them and beat Charvel to the punch beat Jackson to the punch, beat Ibanez to the punch, beat all these guitar companies that ultimately beat them to the punch because Fender got into the super strap business after the fact. Like in the late 80s, they started trying to make their heavy metal strats and heavy metal telecasters and whatever. But then people were just like, oh, you're trying to be like Charvel. Oh, you're trying to be like Jackson. When in reality, Jackson and Charvel took... Fender's guitar and made it modern and and sold the fuck out of it so yeah Fender fucked up not giving uh Dave Murray a signature model which they later did many many years later once he was not as relevant as he had been previously I mean you know he's still relevant and Maiden's still a very relevant band but as a matter of fact by the time they finally gave Dave his signature model for for that black strat that Black Strat had been retired for a while, and he was playing other stuff. So, um, so they, when they made him his signature model, the black one, he was like, "Well, you know, I'm actually playing this now, which was a completely different Strat." And they're like, "Okay, well, we'll make you one of those too." So Dave Murray actually has two signature models, which is kind of cool in a sense, but um, he should have had one way before. Anyway. That black guitar, that that uh, black Strat, the 57, the Paul Kossoff model, is basically the guitar that created the sound of Iron Maiden. Because when um, they went in to record the Soundhouse tapes, Dave was the only guitar player in the band. Supposedly, there are rumors online that this dude named Mad Mac, who was in the band for a minute, actually recorded also on the Soundhouse tapes, but I don't have any other evidence of that. And you don't have Mad Mac out there giving interviews talking about how he, you know, played all the cool parts or anything like that. He doesn't ever mention that he played on it. So to me, all I know is the official lineup during the time that the Soundhouse tapes was recorded, the only guitarist was Dave Murray. So I'm assuming he's the only guitarist on the Soundhouse tapes. And... While the Soundhouse tapes were unfinished and um, not a real 
great representation of what they actually wanted to put out there at that time, it did establish a couple of things. And the main thing was it established the sound of the band. And since Dave Murray was the only guitarist on there, that makes Dave Murray the guitar sound of Iron Maiden. And that's the way that I've always seen it, and that's the way that I always will see it. Uh, Dave Murray is the epitome of the guitar in Iron Maiden. His sound in those early days was basically a Strat with humbuckers, which is a sound that we've all come very accustomed to over the years. But in those days, it was very unique. And he was the only one that would switch pickups during solos. He would go to that front pickup for that sweet sound, that, that deep, low sound in those slow solos. And he had so many classic solos in those days that in my notes... I just have classic written everywhere for, I have classic written down for Prowler solo, for uh, Remember Tomorrow solo, for the Phantom of the Opera solo, for um, Strange World solo, for Ides of March solo, for Wrathchild, Murders in the Rue Morgue, Another Life, Killers, Genghis Khan. To me, these are all some of the purgatory, Drifter. These are all some of the great early heavy metal solos of all time. And they're all by Dave Murray. And they all have that impeccable Dave Murray sound that no one has ever really been able to duplicate. And that I think is, in a lot of ways, just the definition of the solo guitar in Iron Maiden. And when you're the first guitar player in a band, when you're the first guitar player to make an album with the band, whatever, when your sound is the recognizable sound of the band and another dude joins the band, he kind of has no choice but to go along with the parameters that you've set. You know, of course, he can have his own style. He can play his own shit, of course. But within the framework of a band that already exists, you have to limit yourself to, to the certain range that has been set. And Dave Murray set that range in Iron Maiden. And everyone that came after has existed within that range. Now, if you notice, all the songs that I just mentioned are on the first two records. And that's not an accident because I think that was the golden era of Dave Murray. Yeah, he's got a lot of great stuff after that. And even on the new album, he's got a lot of great stuff. But to me, it's just, it doesn't have that same weight and that same, you know, importance. And the solos aren't as classic as the ones on those first two records. That's just me. That's just my opinion. You know, a lot of other people have a lot of other opinions. You know, people point to... um Power Slave as a classic Dave Murray solo. Uh, Number of the Beast, Hallowed Be Thy Name, Where Eagles Dare, Aces High. You know, um, Flight of Icarus is a great 
snapshot of what a Dave Murray solo is like, and then followed by an Adrian Smith solo. That is a perfect example of what an Adrian Smith solo is like. It's like this is this is what we do, you know, all in in one song. That's Flight of Icarus, you know, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. He uh, Dave has a strange solo out of character, you know, for that one, you know, and then again. The ones that the some of the ones that I like are Phantom of the Opera, is that slow melodic solo that just is so upfront and in your face and you can just you just feel that shit. I feel that shit. You know, uh, Twenty Two Acacia Avenue is a perfect example of where uh, Dave switches to the front pickup to get a certain sound for certain notes, switches to the back pickup to get a different sound for different other notes. If you listen close, you can hear it. One thing that I definitely would suggest if you if you're listening because I had to like basically some of this stuff is online about who plays what, but I had to basically rely on my ears a lot to to tell me who I thought played what, you know, and sometimes when you when you uh, listen to Iron Maiden in with headphones on, you can hear like okay, uh, Adrian's pad to the right, um, Dave's pad to the left. So basically, everything on that I hear on this side is him. Everything I hear on that side is is Adrian. Now that's not necessarily true. A producer could get tricky and switch up on you whenever he wants, but generally speaking, that's true. And so um, I figured out where where most who does most of these things to my satisfaction anyway so if you listen to a song like 22 acacia avenue you could tell where dave switches pickups and it's kind of cool just you know like oh okay I, okay i hear it there all right i hear it there it's kind of cool it's a trip now dave's solos are important because he doesn't write a lot of songs you know he writes a couple of songs here and there or whatever but the majority of what you're ever going to hear that is Dave Murray style is from Dave Murray solos. You can look it up or you can listen uh, tight. And while you're listening, listen for that deep tone, that deep throaty tone of that front pickup. And that is the Dave Murray sound. As far as the rest of his equipment, he's got a lot because um, during the Power Slave tour, I believe, him and his roadie set out to like find all the deals that they could find as they were touring the United States, and they picked up a bunch of guitars. So sometimes you you during uh, after that time you would see um, Dave with a Dean or a Gibson or an Ibanez. Sometimes I've seen him with an ESP. I've even seen him with a Jackson. So this was during the time when 90, he retired the black and white. And he had just bought all these guitars on the previous tour. So he just played whatever for a while. But then you saw that he reverted back to strats. And then when Janik joined the band, when Adrian left, he was also a strat guy. And by that time, the pickup companies had figured out how to make a humbucker in the normal size of a single coil pickup. So you didn't have to cut up your strat to put them in there anymore. So Dave learned that from Janik and started just dropping all these uh, pick all these pickups, which his choices were the JB and the hot rails. 
and he would throw those into just any strat basically and he was good to go sometimes he would put a floyd rose on him sometimes he wouldn't sometimes he'll put a kaler on it sometimes he wouldn't uh dave's another one of those dudes that he doesn't stick to one particular tremolo you know for example like i'm a floyd guy i love floyd's yeah i'll mess with a regular strat tremolo but i would rather if there's a floyd in there dave didn't care dave had uh his his black guitar had a regular tremolo on it for a while then he put a kaler on it for a while then he put his regular tremolo back now his new signature model has a floyd rose on it so he's a man of many tremolos that's for sure as far as the pickups he went from the old demarzio uh super distortions to um, now he he does the um, single space jbs and hot rails and you know i mean the sound is good the his new sound is is based upon his old sound and it's still great but again in my opinion it's not as great as it used to be just like his solos are not as great as they used to be you know i mean far be it to for for you to criticize one of your favorite guitar players in the world but you know he's probably just relaxed a bit and just you know comfortable and you know he'll rather go for consistent sound than a, than a you know outstanding sound that he has to fuck with to try to tune in every fucking day you know um the guitars, you know, uh, are uh, custom made for him now. He probably doesn't have to, you know, screw with them the way he used to to get the sound out of them that he used to get. So it is what it is. Dave Murray's still sound is still one of the best. He's still one of my favorite guitar players in the world. But he's obviously not the same dude that he was in 1983, you know, or whatever. And that's okay. You know, I, I don't have a problem with any of that. I love Dave Murray. As far as effects go, he keeps it pretty basic. He has all your delays and all your stuff that everyone has nowadays. And, you know, his basic sound comes from his Marshall amps. And uh, he also had a time where he played high-watt amps. A lot of those British amps are pretty similar, uh, you know. A lot of people swear by Marshall's. He does too, but he's also played, you know, various other uh, amps, including high watts. And in front of that, he puts uh, MXR Distortion, which is an old, very reliable, very good distortion pedal. Uh, Randy Rhodes used it. Eddie Van Halen used it. You know, um, Dave Murray used it. And a Crybaby Wah, which is, you know, the gold standard of Wah pedals and still, you know, still is. So, um, so yeah, so basically that's the Dave Murray sound and that's the sound of Iron Maiden. Now, another dude who added to the sound of Iron Maiden when he joined was Dennis Stratton. Dennis Stratton joined in 79. He was only in the band for a year, but he did do the first album and the first major tour when they opened for Kiss. Now, the thing about uh, Dennis Stratton is that he was into, you know, Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and dudes that, you know, that the guys who would become the metal guys liked. But he also liked a lot of other kinds of music. He liked the Eagles. He liked uh, George Benson. He liked Toto. He liked um, 
a lot of bands like that that had a lot of harmony. He liked Wishbone Ash, which was one of the first bands to do the the harmony lead guitars. And um, so he was really into harmonies, and Steve Harris basically told him on the first album to go ahead and run with it and put in extra harmonies wherever he saw that there would be room for him. Uh, some good examples of where he put those are uh, Transylvania and um, Phantom of the Opera. And there's a lot, there's other instances, too, of, of uh, where he put in the harmony guitars. Now, Steve Harris had the idea to have harmony guitars a long time before. And to a certain extent, I'm sure with other guitar players, they messed around with that. But the final version of the harmony guitars that you ever hear on an album and on the second album which a lot of those songs were worked out while Dennis Stratton was still in the band a lot of those harmonies were put there by Dennis Stratton now harmony guitar is a huge part of the Iron Maiden sound so therefore you would have to say that Dennis Stratton made a significant contribution to Iron Maiden even though he was only there for a short time now uh i wasn't that big of a fan of of dennis stratton's style you know he was a more basic uh, bluesy feel player and i like dudes that played faster and you know he showed up with a sunburst les paul which at the time couldn't have been there couldn't have been a more boring guitar that you would come on stage with other than a telecaster that would be worse but, you know, it was, you know, it was like, uh, the guy from Ario Speedwagon plays one of those, you know. Little did I know that dude from Ario Speedwagon is a badass guitar player, Gary Rickrat. And, um, and it's a badass guitar. The fucking Les Paul is a fucking classic badass guitar. But at the time, you know, when I, I mean, when I became aware of it, obviously he was already out of the band. But I was like, ah, I'm not going to miss that guy, boring guy, you know. Um, later on in Praying Mantis, his guitar style was more evident. Uh, he was better and more polished, and he got to play his own style. But when he was in Iron Maiden, he was trying to keep up with Dave Murray. He was trying to play faster than he was comfortable playing. Uh, he was His sound was a lot like Dave Murray's because I'm sure that his own guitar sound wasn't like that because he wouldn't have been playing stuff that heavy or that distorted. So, you know, basically... The contribution of uh, Dennis Stratton to Iron Maiden is those harmony guitars. Now, there is some controversy. In, uh, in looking up a lot of stuff, I found out that uh, there's a lot of people out there that think that Dennis Stratton played the, um, the solo to Strange World. The first solo to Strange World. Now... I always assumed that that was Dave Murray. It sounds like Dave Murray. It feels like Dave Murray. Uh, it's one of my favorite solos ever, ever, ever. And I always considered it to be a solo by Dave Murray. Now, a lot of guys online are saying that they have reason to believe this or that, that that's actually Dennis Stratton. If it is, then that's Dennis Stratton's shining moment. And something he should be bragging about until they make him shut the fuck up about it. And I've never heard him brag about it. So that is another added evidence to me that I don't think it was him. But 
treat yourself to go listen to Strange World with headphones on if you can. And just dig that first solo, dig the second solo. To me, they're both Dave Murray. To some people, that first one's Dennis Stratton. And if it is, cheers. Fuck. You fucking killed it. You know, if you want to check out some other solos that were definitely Dennis Stratton, he definitely plays the first solo on Sanctuary. He plays the second solo on Remember Tomorrow. He plays the second solo on Phantom of the Opera, which is a fucking classic. He plays the first solo on Transylvania, which is a great solo. He plays the second solo on Charlotte the Harlot, which is also a good solo. And like I said, he may or may not play that first solo on uh, Strange World. And if it is him, man. Now, Dennis Stratton's tenure in Iron Maiden was short-lived. He says it's because uh, the manager, Rod Smallwood, didn't really like him. The band says it was because he was trying to inject his outside influences into the band. And it obviously was not the direction of the band, so they had to let him go. Whatever it was, it opened the door for um, Adrian Smith to join the band. Like I said, he was a, a childhood friend of Dave Murray's and, you know, an upgrade. You know, that's that's uh, something that Iron Maiden usually, when they make a change, it's for the good of the band. And um, when they made when they got Adrian Smith over Dennis Stratton, it was an improvement for the band. When they got um, Bruce to come in for um, Paul Diano, technically it was an improvement for the band. When they got Nico to replace Clive Burr, it was a huge improvement for the band. Everything except Blaze Bailey, which was obviously not. Uh, but, yeah, so Adrian, again, you know, he was a, a childhood friend of um, of Dave Murray's. He was also, you know, he had bands of his own like Urchin, which played on, you know, bills with, with Iron Maiden and Samson and bands of those days. And he sang in that band. So Adrian Smith can sing. You know, um, he's not a great singer, but he adds a lot of the good backing vocals in Iron Maiden that you've heard from Killers all the way until this day. Now, when Adrian showed up again, he was first spotted playing a gold top Les Paul, which again, like I said, I thought it was boring or whatever. But uh, but Adrian's never been married to one guitar. He plays a lot of things. And when we next saw him was in the uh, Number of the Beast video, and he's playing that red Ibanez Destroyer, which is a badass guitar, and it sounds great, and it plays great, but it weighs like a million pounds, and it has like about as much wood in it as just a fucking a boat, you know, so um, really big and bulky and hard to play and to, for me, but... Um, but like I said, he went on after that. He got, he, when Lado, that Canadian company, made guitars for Iron Maiden, Adrian Smith was really the only one that took that and ran with it, you know? And then he played various strats. And then finally he got his, um, his signature Jackson, which is a badass guitar, very Charvel like, and something that I would love to own. 
So basically, Adrian went from a from a guy whose guitars I really didn't like that much to a guy whose guitars I love, and um, and his sound is great. You know, it's it's a very basic, uh, but it has a lot of tone, and um, and you know it it has to because he has to you know he has to uh, occupy that space with Dave Murray, so he has to keep up, and he does. Um, his uh, sound is basic Marshalls. You know, he also plays Black Star amps, which again is a very similar amp. He uses uh, Tube Screamers to uh, get his distortion. And uh, he uses various Digitech pedals, a whammy and other delays that, uh, that he uses to achieve that Adrian Smith sound. Now, uh, as far as his influences go and stuff like that, when he was a kid, he was into like Johnny Winter and Pat Travers and dudes like that that were more toneful, more uh, melodic, you know, um, not necessarily super fast shredders. And that turned out to be Adrian's style. You know, he doesn't, uh, you know, sometimes it sounded like Dennis Stratton was trying to play faster than he was comfortable with. It never sounds like that with Adrian. He's always within his comfort zone even if he's not like you know burning up the frets which he can also do but he only saves that for like special moments and when it fits the song and that's really part of adrian's style is his solos always fit the song melody wise they always fit the song um harmony wise and they always fit the song as far as the speed and texture of the solo goes along with the song now like i said i thought the dave murray golden era was the first two records and obviously adrian's on the second record but i think on killers he was still kind of finding his legs in the band you know trying to fit into the sound trying to fit into the band and he hadn't really gotten his legs yet so if you want to hear like prime time adrian at the top of his game i would go number of the beast peace of mind Power Slave, and um, Somewhere in Time. Those are the shining moments for um, Adrian Smith and where he found his style and his place within Iron Maiden. And Adrian also writes a lot of songs. And he writes those shorter songs that are more uh, with, a, with a standard song structure, like Flight of Icarus and songs like that. Like and he writes a lot with Bruce and... Um, and a lot of those songs that, you know, that they have videos for, <laughs> those are Adrian songs. And uh, and they're more, you know, Wasted Years is an Adrian song. And and you need those type of songs when you're also going to have like a Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner or you're also going to have these long, crazy, epic songs. It It's nice to have those short songs that are, you know, even they're, they're longer than radio song, you know, but they're like four minutes, you know. And a lot of those are the songs that people know. And so therefore, you know, yeah, I mean, Adrian's made immense contributions to the Iron Maiden library of songs. As far as um, Adrian Smith's solos that I dig, uh, I love his solo in The in the Prisoner. He has that melodic solo. It's like a composition in itself, you know, perfectly part of the song. In Power Slave, he shows that he can shred. You know, he does that fast part. You know, um, the number of the beast. 
he has the second solo, which is like uh, just a, a perfect snapshot of, okay, this is what Adrian Smith sounds like. You can tell which solo in that song is Dave Murray. You can tell which solo in that song is Adrian Smith. And if you can't tell, then you're probably never going to be able to tell them apart ever. But because that's the perfect song to be able to tell who's who. Um, on Wasted Years, that solo is perfect for the song you know he wrote the song so obviously you know that gives him an advantage to writing the solo but it's just a solo that fits perfectly in the song if somebody played a different solo during that song it would sound wrong and that is a a perfect sign that you're doing something right um on the wicker man he gets super shreddy on the trooper, he plays that first solo, and that's another solo where you can obviously tell who plays what. You know, um, on Prodigal Son, he has that cl slow, classic solo, reminiscent of Dave style. But then Dave also has a solo on there too, and you can tell, oh, wait, wait, that's more Dave. So that one's Dave, you know. Uh, in Two Minutes to Midnight, Adrian has a solo that has just got all the feel, you know, where he shows that he's got like that emotion too in his shit, you know, that Dave has often in his shit. In Different World, that's another solo where it's a composition. Stranger in a Strange Land, he shows both things that he can do. He's got a, a slow part with a lot of feeling, and then he's got a fast part that gets super shreddy. Adrian Smith is an underrated guitar player, man. Um, you know, for me, I've I've always underrated him because he's always been second fiddle to Dave. But for people who don't even who also underrate Dave, then Adrian Smith's even that much more criminally underrated as a guitarist. Adrian also left the band for about nine years. In 1990, he left. He didn't return until 99. And in the meantime, that's when they got Janik. So I'm going to get into Janik, but before I get into Janik, I also said that I would cover everyone who ever plucked a string on a Maiden album, and so here it is, Bruce Dickinson, yes, <laughs> Bruce Dickinson picked up the guitar on uh, to do Revelations on the Power Slave Tour, so that is on Live After Death, and you know, he does the picking part. Uh, on, on, of course, a sunburst Les Paul, <laughs> which again, you know, ugh, boring. I mean, it's a great guitar, you know, and I've come to appreciate Les Paul's later as time went on. And of course, I love Ace Freely, and Ace Freely always played Les Paul's, but that's Ace Freely, you know. Everybody else is just like, oh God, what are you gonna play with that thing? Some, you know, country or you know, well, that's even more truer of Telica, anyway. I've I've got certain guitars that just you know bug me and and Telecasters and Sunburst Les Pauls are in that category. So anyway, so yeah, so Bruce busts out this uh, this Les Paul and he plays the the uh, strummy part in uh, Revelations or the picking part actually, and yeah, so I actually. It's a pet peeve of mine when a guitar player just picks up a guitar for one song and it's like, okay, guy, you're already the front man. Just do that, okay? You don't have to fucking, oh, look what I could do. Oh, look what else I could do. Oh, anyway. So, but 
Yes, Bruce uh, played guitar on an Iron Maiden album, and I don't know what it sounded like because it was probably way down in the mix. But anyways, Bruce Dickinson, guitarist, Iron Maiden. <laughs> so, uh, Adrian left in 1990, and as is usually the case with Iron Maiden, they, you know, picked up a homie. Uh, Janet Gers was, um, you know, from the same area, you know, he was in, uh, he was in Ian Gillen's band, he was in Gog Magog, which was a band with, um, Paul Diano after he left, and then, uh, he did Bruce Dickinson's first solo album, Tattooed Millionaire, while Bruce was still in the band, so he was a homie, you know, and, uh, so when Adrian left, they always go to the homies first. And in this case, it worked out perfect because Janik can play anything, man. I mean, Janik is just like a professional guitarist where you could probably just play something once in front of him and he'll just get it. And his hands are so fucking great that he doesn't struggle with anything. He never looks like a part is hard for him to play if anything he often looks like just bored and like he doesn't even really give a shit with what he's playing you know he can play parts that look hard when other guys play him but he could play him running across the stage or or uh, running around Eddie or any or holding the guitar straight up in the air all the other crazy shit that he does now there are a lot of guys on the forums and stuff that are not fans of Janik. They're like, okay, you understand why we had to have Janik, but now Adrian's back, so why do we need Janik now? He, uh, he plays sloppy, and he doesn't care, and he's fucking whatever. And yeah, you know, if you were just watching Janik, you would think, well, this guy doesn't really give a shit. It, it, he's just like up there just having a fucking fun time and he's doing a lot of tricks and he's doing a lot of you know bullshit whatever but he does it so good and he does it so proficiently and with such ease that I find it really impressive you know that he's doing all that shit and it doesn't really look like he's trying at all you know but a lot of guys I guess hardcore Maiden fans or whatever they find it offensive that he's you know bullshitting or having too much fun or playing too sloppily or whatever the case might be but the dude is a is a blackmore fanatic you know he came up liking blackmore jeff beck and uh rory gallagher but especially blackmore and it shows you know uh richie blackmore was off the cuff he never did anything the same way twice he fucking uh, did whatever the fuck he wanted and let his greatness fucking shine through. And Janik does the same. Now, is his greatness the same as Blackmore's? No, absolutely not. But, uh, you know, I don't think anybody's going to fucking be like, you know what, Janik Gers is my favorite guitarist and I pick up the guitar because Janik Gers. That's not likely to ever happen, you know, unless you grew up like right in the same neighborhood and, you know, you know his one of his kids or something but he does a lot of amazing shit and he brings a lot of energy to the band on stage i was actually listening to live after death the other day because it's one of my favorite live records and it is a um 
I think, uh, excellent representation of what Iron Maiden sounded like live in those days. Uh, but when I was listening to it, I was like, wow, this sounds really thin because it's just Dave and it's just Adrian. And I've gotten used to over the years hearing Janik in those live recordings and with him not there, it sounded a little bit empty. Now, I got used to it in like 10 minutes and I was back to like, you know what? I think this sounds better just with two guitars. But I would flip flop on that again if I heard one of the newer live albums again because Janik just occupies so much space. And another thing that Janik does that people probably don't know about is that a lot of guitarists um, use that scoop sound now as far as their EQ, where they, they put the lows up, they put the highs up, and they scoop out the mid-range a little bit, and that's the sound that they like. And it's a good sound. Metallica really uh, brought that sound to the forefront. But a lot of guys go with that sound, and it's actually a sound that I like a lot. Well, since Janik is now the third guitar player in the band and and both of the other guitar players play with that scoop sound what Janik does is he turns down the highs and he turns down the lows in his own sound and he boosts the mid-range so now he fills that spot and it really gives Iron Maiden a much fuller sound uh, and it's selfless of him because he when he was the only the second guitar player, he also used the scoop sound. So he's actually altered his sound to fit in better with the band. And that's something that a lot of people probably don't know. And a lot of people probably wouldn't do. And if he hadn't done that and decided to also go with the scoop sound, you would have three guitar players competing for exactly the same range in the spectrum. And I'm not sure how that would go. I don't think it would go as good as it's going now. As far as Janik's solos go, he has like a real fun style. You know, he does a lot of tricks. He uh, strings a lot of licks together and stuff. St the kind of stuff that you would get that you would get in um, like heavy metal instructional videos. You know, tricks to impress your friends and shit. Janik has all of those from pick scrapes and twirls and tremolo dives and all kinds of crazy shit that he does and it's fun i dig it some people don't some people don't think that he takes it seriously or whatever whatever he has fun with it and when he came in to cover um all of adrian smith's solos for the years that adrian smith was gone he didn't play them exactly like adrian he kept the tonality but he had fun with them which some people again didn't like i liked it i thought it was cool as far as um, his own solos that he does on records, I like his solo on Brave New World is melodic, but also really shreddy. You know, um, I like uh, his solo on Afraid to Shoot Strangers. That shows how fast he can play. And he shows, he plays fast, but really easy. Like, it does, it's not hard for him to play fast, you know? Um um, bring your daughter to the slaughter. He has these wild tremolo things that he does, which is cool. I dig all that kind of shit. On Sign of the Cross, he plays fucking fast. That's about probably the fastest guitar you might ever hear on an Iron Maiden album. But, you know, again, it's just like, it's kind of blurry, his style. You know, it's the everything's kind of not set in stone the way he does it. And I'm sure that 
he likes it that way. He also does this weird thing with his strings where he doesn't really have a B string. He plays tens, which means that the, the gauge of the high E string is a 10, but then the gauge of his B string is also a 10. So he uses the same strings on the first two and then it goes up like regular. I don't know what effect that has. To me, it would just be really weird having one string really tight and the next string to it really loose. But I think he plays on that string a lot and I think it helps with some of the big vibratos and big bends and just like loopy trills and stuff that he does. And so... I guess having that, that B string as a 10 gauge E string is lends to his style. And as far as the way that he plays any of the Adrian stuff and that, there's so much video out now of the new stuff. You can see, you know, concerts from the last 10 years all the time, even on YouTube. So yeah, if you want to check out uh, more of Janik's lead style, there's plenty of video that you can see. And um, also, you can see his prancing that people uh, don't like that much. Now, on the stage, Janik's effects are also pretty minimal. Um, he uh, plays Marshalls and Black Stars, and he plays those strats. And like I said earlier, the strats that he came in with, he came in with those Seymour Duncans. They fit in the single, the single coil uh pickup space so he uses the jb and the hot rails pickups and um so they're humbuckers in a single space and he basically uses these two strats although i've seen him with a bunch of strats he uses these two old strats that are just beat to shit i mean the the you know the paint is literally rubbing off of one the other one looks like it was the white one looks like it was baked in the oven and and the and the paint's just like coming off in flakes but obviously they're fit to his hand and he fucking and he tears it up you know with those guitars and he uses the standard um fender tremolo and he uses the fuck out of that thing and that's the thing about um about a fender tremolo and you know people say oh they don't stay in tune and whatever and they don't but if you use it every day and you beat the fuck out of it every day, and you just keep on fucking tuning it every day, it will stay in tune eventually. It will stay in tune after 100,000 miles or whatever, and and that's the way you have to do it. If you pick up a, a, a Strat at the store, and you play it once a week, and you use the tremolo, that shit is going to go out of tune every fucking time, you know? But if you fucking, if you drive that guitar every day and you play that tremolo every day and you know what you're doing or you, or you got a guitar tech that knows what he's doing, then you can get that guitar to be your number one. And that's what Janik does. And, you know, and he throws that fucking thing in the air. He drags it in fucking, he grinds it on amps. He does all this crazy shit on stage and... You know, and those guitars, they take a licking and keep on ticking because they're back every fucking time. But he's a Strat guy and exclusively a Strat guy. I've never seen him with anything other than a Strat on stage. As a matter of fact, in getting ready for this, I saw a video where he was warming up backstage using Adrian's Jackson and playing on that thing. 
And the look on his face was like, what the fuck is this? Like he was playing something foreign because his hand is so shaped to those old strats. And and that's what it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Janix, man. I like his stage antics, you know, that the guys online, they call it his prancing, all that fucking prancing that he does or whatever. Whatever, man. He's having fun up there. He brings life to the band. He's not no younger than them, but he brings youth, you know. And it's funny because Iron Maiden as a band, obviously they're a bunch of old ass bastards, but they don't play like old bastards and their stage show is not old and they're fucking, they're the youngest old fucking band that you're ever going to see and their energy, I mean, I dare you to go to the fucking concert and match their fucking energy. You can't, I can't, you know, and I'm younger than them. But uh, anyways, this has been my love letter to Iron Maiden, to the guitars of Iron Maiden, to the sound of Iron Maiden, to specifically to Dave Murray and to Steve Harris, who are my favorites in in that band and in a sense in almost any band, you know. I would take fucking I would take those two guys. And I take the rest of the fucking guys too. They're all great. Bruce don't need to pick up a guitar anymore. Just write some songs with it and put that shit down. But anyways, this has been the Hit the Light episode known as the Guitars of Maiden. It's me, Big Frog, signing out. Until the next one, I'm out. Just go